The following is brought to you by Dustin Campbell, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, Will Harris, and Craig. Welcome, everybody, to the Politics, Politics, Politics program for May 28th, 2021. It's your old pal, Justin, Robert, Young. And we got a, we got, we got a humdinger of an episode here for you. We're going to discuss something that I didn't realize I was fascinated by until I was badgered by a listener into looking into it. I did it. I am fascinated by it. And that's why we will spend a few minutes talking about the Virginia governor's race. Ah, the Virginia governor's race. It's actually a lot more interesting than you might think. Again, I know I'm going to win you over. I'm going to have to win you over because I wasn't won over. So we'll go we'll go from there. Also, bit of an update on the infrastructure deal including why you shouldn't hold your breath for it to happen anytime through the summer and really into the fall. And we've got an interview with one of our favorites, Joseph Yazinski from the University of Miami, the author of American Conspiracy Theory. We are going to talk to him about the evolution of the Wuhan lab leak theory. If you haven't been following this, the concept of the COVID-19 virus emerging from a lab in China was something that on largely political lines, was defined fairly starkly as a conspiracy, something that was fact-free. Fast forward about a year, and now even mainstream media is saying, you know, there might be something to this. So, are we too loose with the term conspiracy theory? Is there some wiggle room between we don't know and maybe some of the more wild claims around the idea of a lab leak should be discounted? All those questions and more discussed with Mr. Yuzinski. Very happy to have him back on. So I've got an apology to make. I do. I've got an apology. I've said on this very show that 2021 is a suck-ass year for politics. It is the furthest away we are from the next presidential election. 
We're over a year away from the midterms, AKA the election that nobody normally cares about. But an intrepid young listener, Jack, chided me rightly, not once but twice, that the way I've said this, when I praise the fact that at least we'll have a big, fat, ugly California recall to focus on, that I am being deliberately ignorant on one major race. The Virginia's governor, the, the, the Virginia governor election, the gubernatorial contest of the Commonwealth of Virginia. So why am I spending my time focusing more on the New York City mayoral Democratic primary than the Virginia governor's race? Well, I'll, I'll take you behind the curtain a little bit. It's because I thought it would be stupid. You know, Virginia was once a red state. And then it became a purple state. But these days, old Virginia's pretty blue. No Republican has won statewide since 2009, and Biden won the state just a few months ago by 10 points. Once you're into losing a state by double digits, that becomes something fairly significant. I mean, hell, the sitting Virginia Democratic governor got busted doing blackface and his second-in-command got me too and nothing happened. So it looks like the Democrats have a pretty solid lock on things. Why would that be any different now? I'm better off yelling about John Cox running a bear or whether or not Andrew Yang's Gen Z YouTube interview went well. Until I started looking up the reasons why I should care about this Virginia gubernatorial contest. Here's why I and you should care about it. Number one, Virginia's governor's mansion is decided the year after a presidential election. And in that time, the party in power tends to do poorly. Since 1981, the governor of Virginia has come from the opposite party of the president of the United States all but once. So while Reagan was was running things to Democratic governors and then Clinton's running things to Republican governors, you, you get the drift. Whoever the president is, they get elected. And then the next year, the people of Virginia are like, "Now nah, we like the other party. That has happened consistently. All but once in recent times, and we'll get back to that once in a second. But stands the reason that the GOP has a shot here in Virginia. Okay, well, then that defeats my 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 prior before thinking that, you know, th this was just gonna be a a romp for the Democrats. So why do we really care all that much? But we're also in a weird time for the Republicans, right? And 
Trump just doesn't play well statewide in Virginia. Again, he was the major factor of turning a closed state into a double-digit loss in 2020. Even as Virginia has purpled, it's remained competitive. Not so with Trump. Whatever's happening in Florida, whatever's happening in Ohio that's widening the GOP margins there, it ain't playing in VA. So, who would the Republican nominee be? Someone who is ye old in the Paul Ryan, Liz Cheney mold. Somebody that is yeehaw. Somebody very much of the America first populism. Indeed, there was one woman running for the GOP nomination who is nicknamed Trump in heels. Just to give you a sense that that candidate was out there, but she did not win. In the battle of establishment or populist, they kind of split the bill. Enter Glenn Youngkin. Now, Glenn is not a politician. He came from the world of uh, business, from the business factory. He's an outsider. And he got the immediate endorsement of Donald Trump. He backs all the right causes from pro-life to Second Amendment. But despite the fact that he's that he pledged to put in laws for election security, which is the the indicator to those that believe Trump was robbed, that that he also thinks there's an issue there. He hasn't taken a lot of super hardcore Trumpy positions. He's not running as an America first firebrand, nor is he doing it with a Trump bombast. In fact, when I was looking at his campaign ad, something really jumped out at me. Here's literally the first 30 seconds of that debut ad. It was here in Richmond that I found out that my dad had lost his job. It was tough to learn that your hero was human, like the rest of us. So we had to move, ride through the ups and downs, make it work, but that's what families do. So I got a job when I was 15 to help out, washing dishes at a diner in Virginia Beach. I worked my way up to flipping eggs. Now this struck me because the story of a child learning from a father who lost his working class job is a story I'd heard before. Indeed. I heard it over and over from Joe Biden on the campaign trail. Coal miner, my great grandpa was, but he uh, he said uh, he used to say when he moved to Delaware, he got to leave because there were no jobs and he left us with our grandpa for a little over a year. And he commuted back and forth from Wilmington, Delaware to Scranton on the weekends. And we got back down to Wilmington, he used to say to all of us, and I was, I guess, then about, I was, well, I was going to third grade. And he'd say, Joe, remember, and I mean this sincerely, a job is about a lot more than a paycheck. It's about your dignity. It's about respect. It's about your place in the community. And I really mean this. It's about being able to look at your kid in the eye and say, honey, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. 
It's not labor, it's union. What I'm saying is Glenn Youngkin is running as somebody that Democrats can either tolerate or stay home and not be terribly worried if he wins. Now, he's hoping that happens because his likely opponent is somebody that those voters have already voted for once and might feel a certain way about. That man is Terry McAuliffe. If you don't immediately know who Terry McAuliffe is, let me try to paint a picture for you. Think of the insider's insider. The person who is in the room when big decisions are being made within the Democratic Party. Like those Bernie decisions, right? Those questions of which Senate campaign is going to get the most money. Who are we going to cut loose? When there's a big scandal, who, who needs to be thrown to the wolves to sacrifice for the tribe? Like, those decisions... Terry McAuliffe is in those rooms. He is a Democratic Party lifer whose tremendous talent is raising money. That's going to make you pretty popular in politics. He started out in banking and made his way in to the world of Democratic politics. He's personal friends with the Clintons, co-chair of Bill Clinton's re-election run in 1996, then runs the Democratic National Committee after that. You know, when here's something that, that I've often said is that like the Democratic Party is it, it tends to be kind of a, a a warlord party in that who's ever on top puts their people in so they can handle the purse strings for other candidates that they like and they can punish other inner party candidates that they don't like. And McAuliffe's a great example of somebody that came in when the Clintons needed to maintain power within the Democratic Party. As Bill is getting out of the White House, Terry McAuliffe is getting into the uh, Democratic National Committee. Then he leaves to co-chair Hillary's unsuccessful primary attempt in 2008. And now you might think if he were just somebody who ran campaigns, if he were just somebody who were friends with the Clintons, that might be where his stock would tend to wane. And yet it didn't. Because Terry McAuliffe will always be a name you hear in Democratic politics, because where he goes, cash is sure to follow. Now, sometimes that money comes with some unsavory side effects. Like the Global Crossing, a firm he founded and exited to massive profit before it declared bankruptcy and laid off thousands only a year later. Or an electric car company that raised a lot of money from China and then happened to reward those backers with American visas. But either way, as long as the money comes in, Terry McAuliffe will be as connected as connected gets. So let's focus on him as a politician, shall we? He ran for office himself first in Virginia for governor. 
in 2009. His campaign ended in the Democratic primary. But his second run in 2013 was a narrow win. But wait a minute. Barack Obama's a Democrat. That means that Terry McAuliffe's a Democrat, but Barack Obama won in 2012, but McAuliffe won in 2013. Wait a minute. That means Terry McAuliffe is the guy that broke the streak. Huh. Combo breaker. But it's 2021 now. Oh, also something to mention about the Virginia governor uh, race. You can only serve one term. So theoretically, McAuliffe couldn't have run again. You're only allowed one term, but then you got to leave. That probably has something to do with the fact that it changes parties so much because you don't get any incumbency advantage. But McAuliffe might, right? Because he's run before. Now he's running again. On the other hand, like his pals, the Clintons, he is defined. No one will be able to stand up to him in the Democratic primary. But he might be the right kind of old news for a Republican to pull the upset. Will the streak be continued? Because remember, Trump wins and then Ralph Northam wins. So now that the streak is, is, is going again, Biden won. That means that the GOP would have the mojo. or. Maybe Terry is just that dude. He's immune. That is what we will cover this summer and find out for sure this fall. You happy now, Jack? Quick update on Biden's big infrastructure bill. This is the negotiation up till now. Biden asked for $2.2 trillion for the first half of his infrastructure bill. The GOP countered with $600 billion. Biden brought down his version to $1.7 trillion. And possibly by the time that you hear this, the GOP will have countered with an offer breaching $1 trillion. Now, $1 trillion is... A, a red line that Republicans have not been eager to cross. They didn't want to cross it with anything COVID related, but infrastructure is broadly popular enough that I think they can get away with doing it. They want to extend how they're paying for it to eight years, but they're willing to put their names on something north of $1 trillion. That is something. But there are also signs that all of this is for naught. GOP Congress folk are already bitching to the press that this is a deal Biden would make if his nefarious staff would only let him. This has continued uh, to be an issue for the last few months that, that anything, any negotiations that are happening happen between the GOP senators and, and Congress people that Biden has known forever up until it's time to make a call. And then it never happens because as the GOP would like to tell you, 
that mean old staff gets in the way. But here's the other reason why I think for sure this ain't happening anytime soon. According to Punchbowl DC, Chuck Schumer has indicated that they are not going to push infrastructure through via reconciliation in this fiscal year. The fiscal year ends on September 30th. The new one begins on October 1st. Since reconciliation is technically a budget maneuver, that means that this ain't happening until into the fall. So don't expect anything to happen soon. Now, if anything did happen, it would have to be bipartisan. But if the Democrats are looking to do that through reconciliation, then it's just not going to be feasible if he's if, if Chuck Schumer's saying that they're not going to try and do that another one this fiscal year. It's just that simple. But even if they did wait, why don't they just bang the drum on something else and then wait until the new fiscal year and ram it in through reconciliation? Or hell, why are they waiting? I mean, we're only going to get closer to the midterm election. That's going to be the time when they're going to make a deal when, when an election's closer rather than farther away. That seems a little stupid, doesn't it? Well, it's only stupid if you have any other options. And right now, the Democrats don't really. Because it looks like they've lost Joe Manchin for the moment. He's joined with Mitt Romney, Susan Collins of Maine, an outgoing uh, senator as of next year, Rob Portman, to draft a bipartisan framework for infrastructure, including agreed-upon framework on how to pay for it. Now, this matters because... It means that they don't have Joe Manchin. They don't have 50 votes. Which means that there's an interesting conundrum for Joe Biden. Does he hope that he can win over Joe Manchin by the time that the, the next fiscal year rolls around in October? Or... Do they try to make a bipartisan deal? And if they do, does that deal look like whatever they are negotiating right now, they being the White House and the GOP, pronounced pal, or do they rely on Joe Manchin, Mitt Romney, and Susan Collins to come up with a framework that they can use? Those are very interesting questions. But let me just say this. It doesn't look like Joe Biden's getting a lot done. Three cheers for pushing that COVID thing through. They did that about as well as they could. It went about as fast as they were going to do it. They didn't want to dilly-dally with the Republicans. They were able to escape, I think, a lot of uh, uh, what otherwise would have been Republican grousing because the, the Republicans couldn't even get their own act together. That was done about as well as you could. But it's been a while. 
in the world of politics. And for somebody that wanted big, bold action, we have not seen things get bigger. All of his plans seem to shrink. If we're going from, you know, human interaction is infrastructure to just a list of bridges and tunnels, then that doesn't seem particularly bold. And as of right now, there's a lot of sitting on their hands, which is the opposite of action. Guys, if you listen to our exclusive episode on Monday, that comes out midnight on Monday, then you knew, you knew because I told you that, that the negotiations between the White House and the GOP were a show to impress Joe Manchin. And as of listening to this episode, you now know that that show was not impressive because Joe Manchin is trying to write his own infrastructure deal. When I tell you that our Sunday, Sunday, Sunday program that is where I watch the Sunday shows and I break down the narratives. I give you guys the Rosetta Stone to watch the news for the rest of the week is valuable to understanding at least how I see the world of politics. This is what I mean. You would not be looking at these headlines and saying, oh, okay, well, who cares? Joe Manchin's talking to Mitt Romney. Whoop-de-doo. You'd be saying, oh, Joe doesn't like what's happening. That means that whatever they're negotiating about and planning is probably DOA. That's the difference. That's the reason why you want to support us at Take Politics Seriously. That's why you want to go sign up at the $3 level, get the bonus episode on Monday, get the bonus episode that comes out on Thursday. That is the latest that we that we talk about news because this episode gets recorded a little bit earlier in the week. Guys, thank you for everybody who is, who is supporting. But if you want to watch the world of politics like that, then this is the way you do it. TakePoliticsSeriously.com Sign up at the $3 level. You get the bonus episodes delivered directly to the podcatcher that you are listening to this on right now. There's a custom RSS feed that you just enter in the way that you would manually enter any uh, RSS feed into a podcatcher, boom, set it and forget it. It's a little bit of a kludge when you first set it up, but the good news is you never have to worry about it again. TakePoliticsSeriously.com Secretary of State Mike Pompeo was recently being interviewed uh, by Martha Raddatz, and uh, he continued to push a conspiracy theory that has already been debunked by our intelligence community. This whole notion that the coronavirus was developed in a Chinese lab, that has been debunked, and he was asked about it. But get a load of how he says two things in a very short period of time. 
believe it was man-made or genetically modified? Look, the best experts so far seem to think it was man-made. I have no reason to disbelieve that at this point. Uh, your, your office of the DNI says the consensus, the scientific consensus was not man-made or genetically modified. That's right. I, I agree with that. Yeah, I've seen, I've seen their analysis. I've seen the summary that you saw that was released publicly. I have no reason to doubt that that is accurate at this okay, point. Okay, so just to be clear, you do not think it was man-made or genetically modified? I've seen what the intelligence committee has said. I have no reason to believe that they've got it wrong. That is a clip from May of 2020. It was much like the narrative around the origin of COVID-19. The idea that the virus escaped from a lab in Wuhan, China, was a debunked conspiracy theory. And yet now, in May of 2021, the tenor of these conversations has changed quite a bit. The lab leak theory is now not only possible, but seemingly plausible, as China has not offered enough evidence to sway many otherwise. But why have we U-turned on this? Do we throw around the conspiracy label too quickly? Here to discuss this and more is one of our favorites, Joseph Yuzinski of the University of Miami and the author of American Conspiracy Theory. Welcome back to the show, Joe. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, I'm so glad that you have become somebody that's come on the show uh, you know, multiple times that I can, I can feel comfortable emailing you to talk about this because what I, what I really want to talk about with, with this lab leak theory is not the, the concept of whether or not we, we, you know, it's true or not. I think there's a lot more people uh, other than me and you that have uh, uh, details on it that, that are probably more informative, but I, I am fascinated by the kind of public discourse on the idea that it's gone from a conspiracy to a thing we should we should we should focus on. So let me start the conversation here. What is the line for you on when it pass when a thing, whatever, a, a thought, a situation passes into the realm where you feel comfortable calling something a conspiracy theory? So there's two dimensions to it, and I think those are getting confused right now in the popular discussions. Okay. So if you say, I think this uh, COVID-19 might have leaked from a lab accidentally, that's not a conspiracy theory because you're not alleging a conspiracy. Yes. Right? So when we talk about conspiracy theory, what you're what we're saying is that there's an accusatory perception that some group of powerful people are acting in secret purposely yeah. for their own benefit against the common good in a way that undermines our bedrock ground rules against the use of force and fraud. So if somebody had purposely developed COVID-19 as a bioweapon, then purposely spread it yes. to injure, harm, kill people then we would be talking about conspiracy theory at that point. But if we simply say, you know, scientists were doing science in some lab somewhere and some protocol was accidentally broken and there was an accidental leak, we're not talking about powerful people operating in secret for their no. own benefit against the common good. We're talking about just somebody up. Yes. 
Yes. So not a we're not alleging a conspiracy, right? So that's that's one part. Now I do want to note when I say that that yeah. that people like Tom Cotton said, um, you know, I think this may have leaked from a lab. There's a lab nearby. So if you look at his words very closely, he's not necessarily saying there's a conspiracy. He's saying that this may have come from a lab. If you put some of his comments in context, then one could interpret it as. Yeah. You know, perhaps this was a bioweapon. Perhaps it was purposely leaked or released. So but that would take some interpretation and some context. Well, yeah. And let's. Let, let's let's kind of separate some stuff out here because this is another thing that I find fascinating on the internet is that uh, uh, we have these dual realities where we say words and immediately people kind of go off on separate tangents. So let me let me clear up what I mean uh, uh, by by lab leak and then we can kind of go from there. Uh, there is, and this is what I would say is most likely if it is this, that exactly what you said. Just like has happened around the world at many other virology labs, a bad thing gets out because there is a breaking containment and now it has infected people outside of the lab that is there. There are others, and this has happened from the beginning of of, of the pandemic, that have said either this was engineered in a lab, which is one step Mm -hmm. further than it was being studied in a lab. And then even further than that is the idea that this is a planned bioweapon that was released deliberately to arrest the world economy, you know, suppress the McRib, whatever, whatever we want to put in, uh, uh, you know, the, the results for why that happened. Uh, the only thing that I could think of in the most mild version of that, which has now become more uh, uh, in vogue to talk about as plausible, is the cover up, not the action. So if we don't know more about it, then I do think it probably is fair to say, or at least it meets your definition, that it is a conspiracy by the Chinese Communist Party to stop investigators from investigating further. But that that might be the only thing that I could think of that would match that. Um, I would agree with that. Totally. So if, if it was the case that the Chinese government had important information that we would need to know, and it's a pandemic, so it's all important information that we need to know, and they were covering it up, uh, purposely, then, then to me that would count as a conspiracy. Um, so you're absolutely right that people take the idea that there was a lab leak, and yes. then they can they come up with whatever in their mind. So when we started polling on this sort of bioweapon idea last March of, in 2020, yeah, and we got about a third. Uh, of of our samples, so about a third of Americans bought into the idea that the coronavirus was either um, purposely engineered or purposely spread to harm people. Okay, so that's not lab leak by no. accident. No, 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 no. That's, that is that's purposeful behavior yeah. to either develop this as a probably a weapon or to release it as a weapon. So, so people took the beliefs where they wanted it to go. And I think what's happening now is that you have a lot of people sort of playing tennis without a net where <laughs> they've been saying all sorts of crazy things for, you know, oh, it was, the Russians did it, the Koreans did it, this one did it, and it's a bioweapon or it's this or that. And now this lab leak um, hypothesis gets some attention and some 
some evidence behind it. And they say, well, I was right all along. And the answer is no. If you were saying anything other than it might have leaked from a lab, then then what you were saying isn't really being evidenced right now. So then that brings that brings us to the second part of your question. Gotcha. Yeah. Which so that's the substantive part of is it a conspiracy theory or not? And then yeah. we get into the epistemological question, which is is it a conspiracy? meaning a that it really happened or is it a conspiracy theory meaning is it simply alleged ah, but okay. not yet proven so to me that dividing line is um that you, you would have uh the, the authoritative experts in that particular area have come to a consensus based on open data and evidence that could be refuted by people if they wanted to refute it so, so right now there's no consensus on w- what this was. I th- there may not have ever have been a a true consensus, um, but as it stands right now, um, the lab leak um, hypothesis doesn't allege a conspiracy, and it hasn't really been shown to be true. Of course, there's some evidence in its favor. Yeah. Um, but but I don't think that's gotten to the point where people who are experts in this area, the people who would make that determination about what happened, where did the disease come from? I don't think they've they've made a determination based on the data yet. So until that happens, I don't think we can we can really say it's true or not. Well, and, and this is what I find fascinating and I love your opinion on, because as a armchair observer you know i'm 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 a barking dog on the internet i am not a virologist i am not somebody mm-hmm. who is necessarily any more than than uh, an amateur observer of chinese politics and and uh, uh you know crisis management but what has fascinated me about the evolution of this is that we've the at least in in the media consensus of the ability to accept this idea that it is a lab leak to even venture into the waters that previously bordered, you know, the, the like pandemic viral video and stuff like that, which, which is more on the side of this is a bioweapon and it's co-engineered by the United States. And mm-hmm. that is far more into the lore, like to even border that, that transit happened by the absence of other evidence for a zoonotic transmission. That as we've just gotten farther into this and we still don't have a custodial chain of it went from this to this to this, which you normally see at this point, that's what seems to have a lot of this evidence, which has been around for a while about the lab leak to maybe be taken more seriously, not necessarily because new things have happened, but the absence of things that would confirm the more a commonly held belief is is that something that 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 tends to shape uh, these kinds of conversations or or is this strange is this odd i think it shapes conversations but i think you might be a little bit too charitable okay okay go <laughs> with, ahead with, with people so we can have the let's say we had the real answer and let's say. the experts and the experts had a consensus on it yeah is everyone going to agree with that Hell no. <laughs> no. So, Hell no. So, it, it, so at some point we realize that evidence doesn't matter all that no. much. For some people it matters. Yes. Um, but but for a lot of people, it doesn't matter what they're going to find. They're going to believe what they want to believe no matter what. 
the yeah. evidence be damned. And you can go back through history and look at other diseases where we had known a lot of stuff and they say, well, that's that was man-made or that this is part of some plot or part of some conspiracy. And um, even after scientists had gathered a lot of evidence on its origins and what it was and how it worked, there were still naysayers. And we still get people in polls. Yeah. Sometimes between 10 and 20% who say the AIDS was created by the U S government or the CIA. And obviously there isn't much evidence for that. And there's a whole lot of evidence for what really did happen, but people are going to think what they want to think. Well, I guess then, then if, if, what should be the goal then, (laughs) Joe? Like, because all I want to do is, is just sort of make the, like, I just want to set up a group. I want to identify. It's just like, Hey, Whoever's serious about trying to find out how this thing started, I really just want that. I don't need the like, look at Dr. Fauci's stock portfolio stuff. Like, I I don't need the like, oh, this is a fact free conspiracy theory because Donald Trump or Tom Cotton said it. Like, I can we just have the people that gather together and say, hey, the thing that shut down the world for a year and a half, we should probably have conclusive evidence on on how it started. So at least we can deal with the thing that's still happening right now. Yeah. I mean, I, that would be great, but, <laughs> but we're humans. We're not computers, we right? Yes. We're not, we're not rational calculators. Yeah. So we all have our own priors, our own worldviews. We have our own ways of interpreting information and we all have different things that we would want to be true. So that colors how we interpret the yeah. available information, how we interpret evidence. So, um, you know, once there is a determination made, if there can ever be one, um, some people will believe it and some amount of people won't. And there, there isn't going to be that much we can do about it. I mean, we can always change some people's minds, but there's always going to be a core group of people who, no matter what we show them, no matter what we tell them, no matter what the fact check is. Yeah. They've got their heels dug in and that's it. So I'm, I'm reading your book and I would encourage everybody to do it. Uh, American conspiracy theory. And I was struck by even the, the, the beginning, the, the first chapter as you uh, rattle through conspiracies throughout the ages, but get into modern examples and how much it is arrested, obviously in the time that you wrote it, uh, which was, you know, Obama era uh, of conspiracy theories and and 9-11 truth or stuff and everything. From your perspective as an academic who studies in this area, are we in a golden age for conspiracies or is it just more prescient because everybody's been cooped up at home for so long and we're just on the internet more reading about crazy things? So I've got good news and bad news. So, I mean, if you're watching, you know, news reports on this topic at all, you see that there's a a narrative that's developed in the last few years. And that is that we are now in the golden age of conspiracy theorizing and social media is making it worse. Yeah, is is the real cause behind it. Uh, I don't find any evidence for that at all. So that's the good news. So, yes. <laughs> you know, I've been I've been polling on conspiracy theories for a decade. I even compare the polls I've taken in the last decade to polls that were taken prior to the internet era, going oh. back 50, 60 years. And we find no increases. 
So there is really? not some across the board increase in people believing specific conspiracy theories. So that's the good news. Yes. The bad news is, is that a lot of people believe conspiracy theories <laughs> and always have. And we can't just blame some exogenous force like, oh, it's it's just Twitter or Facebook that's doing it to people. Yeah. There's something very human about it. And we have to accept that. We always have this thing where we want to blame you know, you look in the past and we've blamed radio and books and the printing press and TV and cable. And it's always something that's rotting people's minds. But the truth is, you know, people have beliefs because they're human. They come around to their beliefs in very human ways. And um, it would be nice if I could blame the fact that my friends and family members believe all sorts of wacky stuff on Twitter. Yeah. But I can't. I have to blame it on the fact that we're human. And that's very close to home. And a lot of people don't want to accept that. But this is just part of the human condition. I think what freaks people out about social media is that it's all recorded on a level that is more accessible than we've ever had before. And, you know, uh, 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 to get to another, I, it's going to seem like I'm stalking you because it's another thing that you appeared in. But <laughs> I was reading the uh, or re watching the uh, uh, QAnon documentary on uh, HBO, which you have a which you have a cameo in uh, talking about conspiracies, but that very much is a documentary that is of the opinion that this is being supercharged because of of online stuff. And as somebody who's you know written and produced podcasts about like the 1960s, I'm like, man, if if the John Birch Society had a Facebook group. It would have melted people's faces off. <laughs> like, you know, if 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 some John Birch Society meeting that happened in 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 uh, uh, Kansas City, where, where where the mayor walks in and and starts talking about the things that the John Birch Society was talking about, it would have been gigantic news. Nobody knew it then because there wasn't a log of people walking in and walking out and exactly what they said in the way that there is on Facebook and Twitter and and social media. But but do you do you think that that's that's part of it is that now it's recorded and we can freak out about the fact that we do hold these beliefs and and they are as pervasive as maybe they've always been. But now they're searchable. So that they're recorded for anyone to see does two things. It allows them to spread if they are going to, because other people can access it and it allows other people to see it and freak out about it as you as you point out but we have to make sure that we're not confusing the fact that we can now see something with the idea that there's more of it yeah right yeah and, and again polling on lots of conspiracy theories many many conspiracy theories we're not finding increases now compared to pre-internet so it, you brought up QAnon as an example so yeah. having been polling on QAnon for three years, I have found no increases whatsoever. And I've polled on it several different ways. Now, if there, there have been a few lousy polls that have gotten into the news and have gotten a lot of coverage because they show fantastic things, but they're generally terrible question wordings. When you, when you do this uh, properly, you find that mm -hmm. you've got maybe four or five, 6% of people saying they believe in or follow QAnon. And from 2019 through 2020 through 2021, we just took our last measurement last week, no increase. 
Yeah. And we measure it several different ways. So so that hasn't gone up. And and you bring up the Birchers, but they're, that's an important thing to think about is that groups, weird groups, were always able to get together, inform and spread their message, sometimes through small groups, like you mentioned the Birchers. The Lyndon LaRouche group is another yep. group that got together before the internet. Um, but every major religion was able to start with somebody writing some stuff or telling stories. And then it blossomed into, in some cases, billions of followers over some period of time. And you didn't need Twitter to do it. Right. So yeah, people were able to do this thing called talking long before (laughs) they were doing this thing called tweeting and, and that worked and people were able to spread their messages. So it isn't like some new thing where everybody was living in some isolated pod before, you know, 1995, (laughs) you know, and that's, and that's the crazy thing is, you know, the other, another documentary that I watched two weeks later is, uh, uh, sons of Sam, which is on Netflix. And it's about this, uh, uh, a freelance journalist who believes that there's multiple sons of Sam that leads him in spoiler alert for the sons of Sam documentary. But it leads him to the idea that there is an organization of Satanists who, among other things, control their organization with death and intimidation and often engage in pedophilia and recording it and blackmailing each other. And it's like, that guy's the hero like in for, for discovering this and trying to bring to light this this organization in this documentary in the QAnon documentary it's uh, uh you know the 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 death of all worlds i tend to find that it's a fantastical claim that is lacking at least definitive evidence from my particular case in both situations but it is it it, it to me was 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 very clear there that it's like okay if if we like this guy and He's he's trying to solve this case and we can identify with wanting to unravel the unknown and the mean New York police department being lazy and wanting to put this behind them. Then we're like, I don't know, man, maybe these Satanist pedophiles are real. But if it's the QAnon thing and it's against your your political opposition, you're like, this is the most dangerous thing on the planet. And we need there ought to be a law to curtail it. (laughs) Well, this is the funny thing is that that those ideas about Satanist pedophiles have been around, I think in one form or another for millennia. And as wacky (laughs) as it sounds, when we talk about, when they say, oh, QAnon believes that, you know, there's these elite sex trafficking groups in government. Well, that idea is, um, you know, widespread far outside of QAnon and has been for a long time, long before QAnon showed up. And even the idea that there's a pedophile deep state working against the president, that's not new. That's not new to QAnon. I mean, the Oliver Stone movie JFK posits a a pedophile deep state. Joe Pesci plays the pedophile working in the deep state who's working against Kennedy to assassinate him. So it's not like any of these ideas from QAnon are particularly new. And it's not like they're particularly confined to the social media or Internet era. Yeah. I mean, I, I I wonder about that concept of misinformation, and I'm I'm so glad to hear you say. And again, this is confirming my own prior, so I'm I am I am guilty as for as being a human for anybody else. But I'm glad that you are a seasoned academic who is saying it. That like a lot of these things are have just been around, and and 
I don't know if this this era of blaming the the ghosts in the machine for spreading the information faster necessarily makes it actually spread, but but more just that we can see it. It's just it's just there. It's in it's in our face. I mean, if we were really in a post truth world, would we be talking about it? Probably, probably not, because we would just think it was a truth world, right? Yeah, we would. We would. <laughs> we wouldn't have any of these concerns. So the fact that we are, are really concerned about this shows that we really do care about truth, and we care about getting the facts right. It's just we realize that you know trying to get everyone to believe the the right thing whatever that is is sort of like herding cats it's very difficult to get everyone to do it and that's always been the case it's not a new problem so then let me ask you this then and and i would presume that this that the, the reverse would be true but if the internet does not make the bad thing or the the conspiratorial things spread faster I guess that also stands the reason that it's not like the information about them erodes their 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 credibility uh, if if more people are able to see more evidence. So there is over the past few decades, there has been a lot of theorizing about this. So is it the case that the internet might actually injure conspiracy theories? Because you know, if we were just sharing them at the water cooler, you're probably not going to debunk me. Right. Yeah. But if I put something on Twitter, that's wacky. People are going to be, you know, dunking on me all over the place. So um, it could be the case that when you put these ideas out there publicly, they're going to face more intense pushback than they might have otherwise faced. But with that said, I, I, I don't think I can conclude that conspiracy theories are less believed now than they were in the past. But here's the thing they could always spread fast and we don't even need to use the word spread yeah people can come to the conclusion that there was a conspiracy behind something without having to hear it from something else right i mean just a few weeks after the kennedy assassination there was a poll taken on whether it was a conspiracy or not it was already 50 percent five zero percent of americans believed that there was a conspiracy behind kennedy's assassination that went up to 80% by the mid 1970s and it's only come down in recent decades but the point yeah. is you can have almost everybody believing in 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 a in a conspiracy theory no internet no social media needed yeah and oh god i can't even imagine what that would what what, what the coverage of 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 an 80% conspiracy over the murder of a president would be in our, in our modern or modern media discourse. Jeez Louise. And like, and like the most, the biggest things that I find now in my polling is, is occasionally I'll hit something that's over 50%. So if we ask, you know, was, was Epstein killed to cover yes. up what he knows, yes. then, then I'll get, uh, you know, a few points over 50% usually. And, and the reason for that, it's sort of the same reason why Kennedy was so believed is that anyone can say that anyone's behind it, right? It's not confined to one political yes. party or the other. So if you think somebody killed Epstein, it could be Trump killed him or Clinton killed him. Just the same thing with Kennedy, whereas, yes. you know, I think the CIA or Castro or whoever did it. And both of those are ridiculous, of course, uh, 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 Trump or Clinton killing Epstein because it was obviously the Queen of England. Uh <laughs> 
So is there are there any other 50% conspiracy theories that you have uh, that you have found in our in our modern polling that's popped up? Yeah, so when we get into general things talking about are there cover-ups and things, so um, we will get more than 40% when we ask about GMO foods. Like are the true dangers of GMO foods being covered up by by government yeah. and and companies? Um but but it's very you know very few because a lot of the ones that we talk about are partisan and those often tend to have a cap on them, you know where you know it's going to be twenty five to thirty five percent and even ones about COVID um, when we asked if it was intentionally spread or intentionally made we yeah. got thirty percent when we said was it was it being uh, uh, exaggerated to injure Trump in the election year, even that was, was 29%. So it, most aren't getting up there in terms of the percentage that they're convincing. And the important thing is most conspiracy theories aren't even being pulled on. I mean, anyone could come up with anything, anytime <laughs> for any reason they want. There's all sorts of conspiracy sludge out there. Most pollsters aren't polling on all of it, but if you stay up till 2am on Twitter watching, you know, what rando accounts are saying, then you will see all sorts of weird stuff and they will come and go in the night and die in the vine. And that's yeah. what your median conspiracy theory does. It's here and gone. It's only a select few that we really care about. All right, last question about uh, a conspiracy polling, and then I'll let you go. Uh, it it appears, at least by the polls, that elements of vaccine hesitancy have uh, uh, it has eroded. Vaccine hesitancy has eroded as there's not some massive uh, medical issue of people that have taken it. It seems to be a reason why people are opening up. Have you seen? Any uh, change in the durability of COVID vaccine conspiracy theories over the last few months as they become more widespread? So one thing I would say is that this is a very fluid situation, largely because the pandemic and the development of the vaccines themselves were all very fluid situations. So yes. when we were taking measurements last summer, we were getting, you know, 30 percent saying they're not going to take that. Sometimes we get more than that. and in last summer, there was this sort of consensus from different pollsters that um, there were racial differences in who was going to take it and who wasn't, with African-Americans yeah. and Hispanics being lower than whites. Now, it seems like some of those racial differences are sort of disappearing, and we're finding class differences. Um, but only a month or two ago, we were finding differences with um, religion, particularly evangelicals who didn't want to take it, or Trump supporters who didn't want to take it now that Biden was in, in office. So yep. um, it seems to be changing as the circumstances are changing. Um, but I, I, I think it seems like more and more people are being willing to take it. And I think they're being incentivized, too. Well, yeah, uh, uh, I think uh, as of Wednesday, uh, Ohio minted their first COVID millionaire, their first uh, vaccine millionaire. They did their first drawing for uh, their five weeks each each Wednesday, a million dollars going to somebody who registers. Uh, uh, you have to be vaccinated to be eligible. So uh, uh, maybe, uh, you know, the belief. Small though it is statistically that you indeed could be an Ohio millionaire for getting a vaccine can encourage those rates to get even. Well, you know, you're going to find those guys in Ohio that got vaccinated 73 times just to try and win a million bucks. 
Maybe, maybe. Uh, Joe Uzinski of the University of Miami. Your book is American Conspiracy Theory. And you are, as always, such a treat here on the show. Thank you so much, man. Well, thanks for having me. I look forward to seeing you again. Politics, Politics, Politics is written and hosted by me, Justin Robert Young, for Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. This show was edited by the bodacious Brett Stewart. If you would like to thank Joe Yuzinski for taking time out of his day to come on and talk about these conspiracies, then please head on over to px3guest.com. If you'd like to email the show, it is theyoungamerican at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at px3tweets. You can hit us up on Twitch, where I am live Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays at px3live.com. You can get our newsletter, px3newsletter.com, and share the podcast at px3podcast.com. Go ahead and get your summer merch. Man, I want to see all these pictures at the pool. I want to see the COVID shots equal body shops uh, uh, tank tops out at the beach. That's what I'm talking about, baby. It's going to be a hot summer and you need this gear. Politicsmerch.com is where you get it. If you would like to support us, you can do so by making a one-time donation. PayPal.me slash payjury. On Venmo, Justin-Young-20. On Cash App, PX3Cash. And, of course, you can send anything physical to my P.O. Box. P.O. Box, 1531-84, Austin, Texas, 78715. Again, P.O. Box, 1531-84, Austin, Texas, 78715. But if you want to get bonus content, you got to go to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. $3 tier gets you two bonus podcasts per week covering all the news that we miss on our free podcast schedule, including the way that smart people start their week. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. The show in which I set and decode the narratives that are being pushed on the Sunday shows so you know what to look for throughout the week. Start your week with it, starting at the $3 tier and TakePoliticsSeriously.com. But that $10 tier, oh, that one, that's the only way that you can get your name read at the end of the show like these fine folks in the Titanic. $10 tier. Headphones, Neil, Neil, Dr. G, the other half of Whiskey Wednesday, Idris, the Government Unfiltered Podcast, 100 Mile Runner, Berkeley Steven, Kathy Mack, Zombie Doc, D, really? Methuselah, Honeythuckle, The Jed, Middle-Aged Mike, Dotcom Junkie, Calamity Zap, D Laser, Lord Scale, De Quince, and Neil the Third, and Gloria Young for King of the New World Order. Utah, Jimmy Montana, Chad, Snuffies, Off Route 44, Miranda Janelle, Jenny Colby, uh, Robert, Casey, Paul, the most conscientious nonpartisan listeners, Brad, Charles, David, Olin, and Angela, DL, just another pilot, Frozen Summers, J Pink, and the birthday boy, Andrew, buddy Andrew, he had a birthday. 
Happy birthday to Andrew. That wraps it up for us today. Uh, we will have Conquering Hero, soon to be host of his own nightly television political talk show, J.D. Durkin. Host of none of the above. I can say that now. He's going to be back on the show next week. We're going to have ourselves a grand old time. Till then, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more discuss politics. But this, this is the only show that dares discuss Oh, Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.